Uh, Jens and I are doing a co-lecture on Vivaldi's Gloria, which is the musical piece that will be performed next week, uh, December 20th, at the Christmas concert. Um, now, as a, word, as a disclaimer about truth in advertising, many of you saw the posters around the church that featured a picture of both Jens and I on the front. Uh, when my son, Leo, who's almost two, year old, uh, two years old, saw my picture, he said, Dada? but not with the exclamation that he normally does, dada. There was a clear hint of question in his voice. And I wondered why, and then I realized that the picture I had provided our communications department was over three years old, before Leo was born, and I have considerably more gray hair now than I did then. So understandably, my son was confused. Now what is true, what is true about advertising is that this will be a joint lecture. Jens will give insight into the historical background of Vivaldi and some insight into the musical features of his Gloria. Well, I'll say a few words about the biblical and liturgical context of the lyrics that make up Vivaldi's Gloria. Uh, in many ways, this is something of a warm-up uh, show or warm-up act to the uh, children's pageant which will follow in the sanctuary immediately afterward. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Jens in a moment, but let us pray to begin our time together this morning. God in the highest, we pray that you might fill this world with your peace and favor. And during this Advent season, we pray that each of us would be stirred with the same wonder that the shepherds experienced long ago as they first heard of the good news of the birth of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Jens? Let me see if mine works. Test. We're good? Okay. Okay, I'm, yep. I think this works. Okay, I would actually like to start by showing you a short video clip that I discovered while doing research for this presentation. I can just possibly find my clicker here. Hang on. Can you make it full screen? Since 1703, he was teaching violin, then he was taking over the choir, then he became the composer of this orphanage. I will say something about this orphanage later. So basically, the forces that he had at, his ha at hand for all of his performances were women, They're girls and women. So I have to admit, I actually did not think it would be possible for women to sing as low as tenors and basses have to sing, but apparently it is possible. This was a British group, what you saw, 
They wanted to perform Vivaldi exactly as Vivaldi would have performed his own music. We are not going to do that next week. We are going to have male tenors and basses, and we are going to have male instrumentalists as well. It's going to be a mixed group as usual. But I thought it was very interesting to see this, because we are talking a lot about how people would have performed their music originally. And this is a totally new approach for me. Now I said Vivaldi was teaching at an orphanage in Venice. Orphanage is actually the wrong word. It started as an orphanage in the 15th century. By the time that Vivaldi came around, it was more a place where illegitimate children were brought up. So all the rich members of the Society of Venice, they would have children with their servant girls or other relationships that they were not supposed to have children with. They would send them to one of these four orphanages and they would also give money for the education of these daughters, which meant that for orphanages, they actually had an excellent education that they could provide because they could get the very best teachers as they could pay a lot of money. Vivaldi was employed there and did live in Venice for a certain time, but then as you can see, he actually traveled extensively. He lived for a while in Mantua, in Rome, Vienna, Prague, etc. And you may wonder how it was possible for him to be employed in Venice at an orphanage and at the same time travel. And you know, at that time, traveling meant you were gone for a very long time. Well, actually, I read that later in his contract, it simply said that he had to provide compositions, one cantata per month or several pieces per month or per year or whatever, and he was paid per piece, but he was not required to be present anymore. So that's how, at the beginning of his career, he lived in Venice, but later he moved around depending on wherever he could get work. Now, as you see, he died in Vienna, which is very interesting, and it shows you how back then the musical world functioned. Vivaldi met in, I believe it was Mantua, the Habsburg Empire, Charles V, and the emperor was very impressed by Vivaldi, his music making and his compositions. And so when Vivaldi was looking for a new source of income, he decided to move to Vienna, to the court of the emperor Charles V, because he was hoping that Charles would employ him as the court composer. <coughs> Unfortunately for Vivaldi, shortly after his arrival in Vienna, the emperor died. So the son who took over was not interested. He didn't know Vivaldi. So his nice plans didn't work out at all, and he died in poverty. And that was a very common thing back then in, in, the, in the Baroque period. Musicians were always relying on rich patrons, either from the church or from the state. And usually it was a personal acquaintance that would really allow them to live, to live well. And if their patron would die, Bach had similar problems, their source of income would dry up. Vivaldi was extremely famous in Europe for his instrumental music. The French king, Louis XIV, the Sun King, loved especially the Four Seasons. Spring apparently was played at any moment in the castle in Versailles. And it were, there were many other courts all over Europe where Vivaldi's instrumental concerti were performed. However, his sacred music was known almost exclusively in Venice because that's where his original group, the orphans, in the, in the orphanage would perform his sacred compositions. They were not known outside of Venice. The other thing that was known, that Vivaldi was known for throughout his lifetime were his operas. He was quite successful, he went to Prague and a couple of his operas were premiered there. So that was, that was the two groups of compositions that he was famous for. And we have to remember that today this is very different. We still remember spring, the, the, the four seasons, but also a lot of sacred compositions. 
At the time of Vivaldi, it was totally different. He was known as only a secular composer. Now, with regards to the Gloria that we are going to discuss later, Vivaldi actually composed three settings of the Gloria, but one of the three is lost, and the other one is basically unknown today. So today we talk about the Gloria by Vivaldi, even though that is not entirely accurate, given that there have been three. A couple of inter interesting facts. The Gloria was not intended as a standalone piece. Uh, there were actually introductions performed, performed before the Gloria, four of them actually survive, which were usually short instrumental pieces with a singer, a, solo, a soloist, like five minutes long or something like that, and they would highlight some kind of aspect of the Gloria. Now there's also one, the first of the three Gloria settings, which now is missing, uh, sorry, which is still existing actually, um, where the, the theme that is used for the introduction is the same that is used later for the Gloria. So that there is obviously a connection between the introduction and the piece that is to be performed after that. Another thing that is very interesting and that is not possible today anymore for copyright reasons, <laughs> Vivaldi borrowed extensively from the Gloria setting by another composer, Giovanni Maria Ruggieri. That, again, is a very, very common practice at that time. Bach did the same thing. He borrowed from many other composers. All of, basically all of the composers at that time, if, you, if there was something that you liked, you would use it, you would use the, the melody from a composition, you would use a succession of harmonies or whatever, or sometimes even everything, and just use different words, and then make a second movement. And th so that's what Vivaldi actually did. There are, there are passages, for example, the second movement of the, of the Gloria that you're going to hear next week. It is basically identical for, for large sections to the Ruggieri. <coughs> so that's something that today obviously would not be possible because as soon as a composer has published a piece, it will be copyrighted. And if you try to use that for your own composition, you get in big trouble, <laughs> unless you pay huge fees in order to be able to, to be allowed to use this music. Back then, it was a very different setup. The Gloria, the one that we are going to hear next week is RV589, so that's the famous Gloria. We don't know when it was composed. That's another interesting thing about Vivaldi. Vivaldi did publish some of his compositions during his lifetime, but he later found out that he could actually make more money by selling manuscripts. Hmm. He was very highly paid for selling his manuscripts, which was a great thing for Vivaldi financially. It is a very bad thing for us because if you have just one copy of a piece, that means the chances that this copy is going to survive are very slim. There's actually a very interesting story of how Vivaldi was rediscovered in a certain way. Once he died, like what happened with most composers at that time was if you were not alive to perform your own music, no one else would perform it. Yeah. So once Vivaldi died, people basically stopped performing Vivaldi. And it was in the early 20th century that in Italy, there was an orphanage, not the same one, but another one, that actually discovered boxes with music in their storage area, in the attic, and they were looking for a source of income. So they approached a librarian and said, well, we found this, this sheet music here, and we need money for our orphans. Would you be interested in buying it? The librarian of the library in Turin realized what kind of valuable manuscripts were in there, because it was mostly Vivaldi, actually. And he had the problem that he didn't have money to buy it. So he didn't want to go to the state because at that time the Italian state would have decided that it would, the manuscripts would not have gone to Turin necessarily, but would have gone anywhere over Italy. And the librarian would have wanted them for his library in Turin, obviously. So he finally managed to find a man who had lost his son. 
So he said, well, look, this is for an orphanage. You have lost your son. Don't you feel for these poor children? And wouldn't you like to donate you know, your <laughs> financial resources? And this man did it. Vivaldi <coughs> looked at the manuscripts, and he had a big problem. He actually discovered that most of the pieces, the last pages were missing. And he discovered that at one point, someone had not had bound the, the different manuscripts together to volumes, but he hadn't done a good job. <laughs> he had simply taken a couple of pages from one piece, then from another piece, so he didn't have complete pieces. So he went on a search. He tried to locate the, the heirs of Vivaldi, of Vivaldi's family. He found a man who indeed did possess the missing pages, and the problem was that, as I read in the, in the source that I read, this man was very difficult to deal with, so it took him a long time to convince him first to actually sell what he had in general. Second, he had to find someone again to pay for it. He did manage to do all of that, and they were about to publish a new edition of, uh, actually a first edition of Vivaldi's works just before World War II, then obviously World War II started, so everything stopped. And in the 50s, finally, they actually they started to publish Vivaldi's works. And so I say here that our Gloria was discovered during Vivaldi Week in Siena, that is, that is true, and then actually it became known to a really large public in England. They had in the early 50s a whole, a whole year where they performed the Vivaldi year, and the public couldn't believe the wealth of the music that they discovered, both instrumental and opera and choral, from this composer that until then had been totally unknown. So back to the Our Gloria. We don't know when exactly it was composed. Either probably it was composed early on during his time at the Hospitalis, so in the 17, 1710 or something like that. Or there's also the possibility that it was actually commissioned by Louis XIV, the French Sun King, who commissioned many pieces by Vivaldi and who commissioned the Gloria for the wedding, uh, for, for his wedding. So that's another option, but that's, I think, more a nice story. And probably it was composed for the Hospitalis. All right. I grab that from you. Now, Brace, I'm going to turn this on, um, and hopefully it will not drive you out of your seats. Are we okay? All right. Mm. This is off. Um, sorry, y'all, again. I just think this is not going to work today. Um, I can, I'll just try using this. All right, how does that work? A little bit better, okay, sorry about that. Now let's turn to the lyrics of Vivaldi's Gloria. There they are. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those he favors. In their Latin form, these words open Vivaldi's Gloria. But of course, they're not the creation of an 18th century Baroque composer. These words originally come from the Gospel of Luke, the second chapter, verses four, verse 14, where they are uttered by an angelic chorus as a way of celebrating the birth of the newborn Christ. For many of us today, these words stand as a symbol of the Advent season and encapsulate in miniature the good news of God's coming into the world. So in this brief time, I, I want to say just a little bit more about these words. In fact, three things about these words. One. I want to say a little bit more about their setting, the setting of these words in the Gospel of Luke. Second, I want to look more closely at the words themselves and think about two important theological points that these opening words of Vivaldi's Gloria are making. 
And then finally, I just want to reflect briefly on the later use of these words in the church's liturgy. So first, a word about the setting of these words uh, from Vivaldi uh, in Luke's Gospel. Now, when it comes to putting together Christmas pageants, or even setting up nativity scenes, many of us Christians do the same thing. That is, we take what we know of the story of the birth of Christ from the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, Mark and John not giving us birth narratives. We take what we know from the Gospel of Mark or Matthew and the Gospel of Luke and we mash them together into one composite story of what the birth of Jesus was like. And maybe in your head, or maybe you've seen this, we come up with a picture that looks something like this. All of the elements of the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew's birth narrative are all there together. But in fact, Matthew and Luke's version of the birth of Jesus is quite distinct. And some well-known elements appear in one gospel, but not the other. And the words of the angel are one of those features. It appears only in the gospel of Luke and not in the gospel of Matthew. Others. Luke, like a good Presbyterian, was ever mindful of giving us an orderly account of the events surrounding the life of Jesus. So Luke alone tells us why Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the first place. According to Luke, Gaius Octavius, known as Emperor Augustus, had ordered a census, probably for the purposes of tax collection and conscription into the army. And that census required everyone to return to the town of their birth. So the man Joseph, who was residing in Nazareth, had to return to his hometown of Bethlehem, a distance of some 80 miles from where he was residing. And he brought with him, according to the Gospel of Luke, his soon-to-be bride, Mary, who was unexpectedly expecting. <laughs> now, in comparison to the Gospel of Matthew, Luke's story of the birth of Jesus is brief and without adornment. It's just two verses, in fact. Think of that, the most critical moment, arguably, in the gospel narrative is given two verses in one gospel. Unlike in Matthew, Luke gives us no magi bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh, so we need to take them out of our picture, and probably we also need to take out of our picture, at least from the gospel of Luke, the camel, which presumably the magi would have uh, ridden to get to Bethlehem, so sorry to Howard, our in-house camel that you'll see at the pageant in just a moment. Uh, but he, he wasn't there uh, in Luke's version of the story. Nor does Luke give us a shining star providing GPS navigational assistance. That's only according to Matthew that that happened. What Luke does do, in contrast to Matthew, is actually tell us of the birth of Jesus itself. But it's just two verses. While in Bethlehem, the time came for Mary to deliver her child, and she gave birth and wrapped that child in bands of cloth, which would have been a very normal practice for any baby born during that time. In fact, Luke alone tells us that Jesus was born in a manger, born in a manger, which is just really a feed box for an animal. What Luke does not tell us, and what Matthew does not tell us, and actually is not anywhere in the Gospel accounts, is that all of this happened in a stable. Now, my nativity scene at home has a stable in it and it's plausible of course for there in fact was a manger but the gospels never name the fact 
that Mary and Joseph were in a stable. We can presume it, but they might have also been in a cave or some other structure. Now, if Luke's version of Jesus' birth seems mundane and ordinary, it is in his description of the birth announcement that we find his literary and theological flourish. Nearby shepherds, uh, which are absent, again, from Matthew's account, um, suddenly see, see a light. Uh, they see an angel whose glory shone brightly in the pitch back black night. This angel, though unnamed, what might have been Gabriel, for Gabriel had appeared already two times in the Gospel of Luke, announcing or foretelling of the birth of both Jesus to Mary and John the Baptist to Zechariah. This angel, Gabriel, perhaps declares, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly, just at that moment, all around the, sh uh, the shepherds sprang into existence a host of angels, or literally a heavenly army, appears, and they offer what might be considered a hymnic or poetic celebration of the first angel's birth announcement. They sing in unison, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. This, in Luke's gospel, is the climax of Jesus' birth narrative. In response, the shepherds depart to see the baby themselves and to announce to the surely frightened young couple what all of this meant. Now, in the broader context of the Gospel of Luke, the, the words that we call the Gloria, or at least the beginning of them, is just one of several angelic announcements, all of which are interconnected. And I'll just give you one example. See if I'm on the right click. Yes. For instance, the angel's Gloria, I think, our text, is meant to echo the foretelling of Jesus' birth earlier in chapter 1. There, Luke relates how the angel Gabriel appears to a surprised Mary to declare the good news that she, a virgin, is with child and would give birth to the one who will be called Son of the Most High. But in our text, oh, and, and there also, sorry, Mary responds in a song of praise to that foretelling, and that song of praise is known as the Magnificat, so termed from the opening word in the Latin translation, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. But in our text, or closely in parallel in our text, an angel of the Lord, perhaps Gabriel, appears to a surprised group of shepherds and announces the good news that a Savior had been born, the Lord, the Messiah. And in response, the angelic host sings a song of praise, not unlike Mary, and it is called the Gloria, so termed for the opening word in that song in its Latin translation. Thus, in the Gospel of Luke, these lyrics, the lyrics that we'll sing next week, we'll hear sung next week, function as something of a framing device or a bracket. They put brackets around the whole narrative of Jesus' birth. By echoing the foretelling of Jesus' birth, the first angel assures the young couple that a savior indeed had been born. And by echoing the Magnificat, or Mary's song of praise, the host of angels echo words of delight that, that the incarnation had happened, that God had broken into the world through this baby Jesus. 
Now, second, I'm going to skip a slide for sake of time. Um, let's move and take a closer look to the actual words that the angels uttered. Uh, they are fraught, I think, with theological significance, but I just want to highlight two points by way of two questions. First, on whom does God's favor rest? Glory to God in the highest, on whom God's favor, uh, oh, let me get this right. Uh, well, let me do the first part, sorry, I'm ahead of myself. Uh, the first half of the angel's response is fairly straightforward. Glory to God in the highest. The Greek word for glory, doxa, is the word that we get things like doxology from, words of praise or words to glorify. Uh, and the Greek word uh, that we translate uh, highest is actually a word that can mean one of two things. It can mean uh, exalted status. That is, glory to the God most exalted, or glory to the highest God, the God higher and more exalted than all other gods. But the same word in Greek can also have a spatial sense. In which case, what the angels are saying is, glory to God who is in the highest heaven, or that is, who is high up in heaven. Now, both might, in fact, be the case. Both are probably in play. And in either case, both don't give us much of a problem in terms of translation or interpretation. Where things get interesting or a little bit difficult is in the second part of what the angels say. Most literally, it could read, and on earth, peace among people of good favor. And on earth, peace among people of good favor. The question here is how the second part of the, of the verse relates to the first. That is, on whom does God's peace or favor rest? Let me give you three popular translations of this verse to get a sense of how they try to figure out the relationship of the first half to the second. The first is from the New American Standard Bible, and it reads this. And on earth, peace among men with whom he, God, is pleased. The NASB does not yet have gender-neutral language for humanity, so and on earth, peace among humanity with whom he is pleased. The New Century Version says, and on earth, let there be peace among the people who please God. And the NIV, New International Version, might be most explicit when it reads, and may peace be given to those he, God, is pleased with on earth. Now, there are some differences in these translations, but what they all are doing is they're understanding the second part of the phrase as a restriction on who will receive God's peace. That is to say, only those whom God is pleased with will experience the peace that is ushered in by the birth of Jesus. Now, this might puzzle some of you. Why would the peace ushered in by Jesus only be limited to a select few, to those who God uh, is pleased with? Well, many people in the early church wondered the same thing. And they, in fact, were quite bothered by this verse. And so some people who copied and transmitted the New Testament, actually, they didn't have white out, but they actually took out the second half of the verse. So we have ancient manuscripts of the Gospel of Luke where the angels say, glory to the God uh, highest, and on earth, peace. And that's it. They solved what they thought was a theological problem, the limiting of God's peace, by simply leaving out a verse in the text. Now, there's another way to do this. We don't need to resort to white out to try to arrive at a similar uh, conclusion. 
Keep in mind, for instance, that there is no punctuation in ancient Greek. So where English translators place commas or insert pauses is strictly a matter of interpretation. And so let me just do a little thought experiment. What if we placed a comma immediately after the word for people? As in the yet to be published but highly anticipated RPP version of the Bible. It would read something like, my middle name is Paul. Um, it would read something like this. And on earth, peace among people whom God is pleased with. In this sort of translation, peace is indeed for all people. And the latter phrase, whom God is pleased with, simply describes God's disposition to all of humanity, not the limits of his peace. This offers, I think, a more inclusive vision of God's peace and what the angel's uh, gloria meant in the first place. And more importantly, it's also consistent with the words of the angel, perhaps Gabriel, several verses earlier when he says, do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all people. Not a restricted sense. So that's the first point theologically that I think matters in Luke's gospel, is that Luke is always giving us a sense of God's kingdom that is inclusive and embracing of all people. And I think even the words of the angels here reflect that. Now, a second question. Why is it important that the angel's audience was a group of shepherds? Why shepherds? Why not, for instance, the wise men, or wise guys, I guess, uh, from the Gospel of Matthew? Or why not even Joseph and Mary themselves? Why didn't the angels just declare what this was all about to the parents who must have been most wondering in the first place what to make of this child that was born? Well, I think there are two reasons, again, uh, that make sense of the theology of the Gospel of Luke. First, the presence of the shepherds is meant to tie Jesus to the Old Testament shepherd king, that is, King David. This is a point that Luke emphasizes again and again, but especially in the first chapter when he introduces Joseph as being from the town of Bethlehem, the same town that David was from in the Old Testament. This not only, I think, demonstrates that Jesus is one of royal descent, that is, he follows in the Davidic line of rulers, but it also highlights another important theme for, the, uh, for Luke, and that is Luke always wants to show points of continuity between the story of Jesus and the story of Israel. They are, in fact, different stories, but Luke wants to build bridges and show you how there are always parallels between what's happening here and now, what God is doing in the earth through Christ, and what God has already done through the people Israel in history. So the shepherd connection for Luke helps tie that, or helps bind Jesus to the Old Testament and particularly to David. But second, and perhaps more importantly, the shepherds are a part of what I call Luke's guest list of the kingdom of God. For Luke, the kingdom is expansive and inclusive, and it comes first and foremost to the least and the last the poor, the maimed, the blind, the, the lame, the marginal, the oppressed, the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, and even the lowly shepherds. Here, at this key moment in the declaration of Jesus' birth, we find one of those least and last first on the scene. In fact, in Luke's account, the shepherds are actually models of discipleship. After the angel departs, 
They are the first to behold the newborn Jesus. They are the first to witness the incarnate Lord. They report the words of the angel to Mary and Joseph. Um, and we might see this again as a parallel for Gabriel, who foretells the birth months earlier. So the shepherds are playing something of an angelic role here in announcing the birth. They too are God's appointed messengers, but I think they also are the church's first evangelists. For after, after they are done with Mary and Joseph, they depart from the manger and they glorify and praise God and share with others this strange thing that they had seen in a Bethlehem manger. The shepherds, not the disciples, were the church's first pastors and missionaries. Now finally, and before I turn it back over to Jens, a brief word about the afterlife of these words beyond the Gospel of Luke. Yep, sorry. Oh, I lost it, sorry. I guess we'll have to start from the beginning. <laughs> there are my X's, there are my slides. Da, 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 da. Quick review, yeah, there will be a test. Okay, here's what I wanted to do. The liturgical use. Um, it seems that sometime in the second century CE, the words of the angels were expanded into a longer Greek hymn that was used by the early church. This longer hymn um, does not appear exactly uh, in the pages of scripture, although it draws on many scriptural references. And by the way, you have the lyrics of Vivaldi's um, Gloria on your seats. And we think that the words of this second century hymn would have been very, very, very close to what Vivaldi incorporates into his 18th century Baroque musical piece. Uh, we don't know a lot about how this hymn would have been used by the early church in the second century, but we suspect that it would have functioned as a type of thanksgiving hymn that was used at special liturgical feasts and celebrations. In either case, in the fourth century CE, so about 200 years later, this Greek hymn was translated into Latin by Saint Hilary, who was a bishop in France at that time. And by the sixth century, this hymn had become incorporated into the liturgical order of the Catholic Mass. The Gloria, even to this day, is one of the movements or, or parts of the Catholic Mass. Um, it's part of what's known as the introductory rites, and it, and it immediately follows the Kyrie eleison, the Lord have mercy, which is the part of the Mass where you confess your sin. So the hymn uh, in Catholic Masses was originally chanted by priests, or it could have been sung back and forth by the choir and the congregation. The Gloria, in this sense, then constitutes a liturgical prayer of thanksgiving in response to God's forgiveness. We pray for God to have mercy in the Catholic Mass and then sing glory to God who grants peace and favor to sinners. And as I said, to this day, part of the liturgical rites of the Catholic Mass, um, the, the glory is used in. It's sung every Sunday, though of course no longer in Latin, at least not after Second Vatican II, or Vatican II. Uh, interestingly, the Gloria is, is omitted during the penitential season of, of Advent, and somewhat ironically, it's omitted during Advent, but in part because it helps build the anticipation of the coming of the Christ child. I mean, it truly is not an Advent text, right, uh, because it occurs after the birth of Jesus. Uh, last word I'll say is that in the Presbyterian Book of Common Worship, 
the opening lines of the Gloria play a less prominent role, though it is suggested as a hymn to be sung immediately following the passing of the peace and the confession on an ordinary Sunday. Now, we don't always do that, but it is also part of the Presbyterian tradition to incorporate uh, what we know as Vivaldi's Gloria into our liturgical practice. So, in that sense then, the Gloria is part of a common liturgical vocabulary, mostly for Catholics, but also for Protestants throughout the centuries. And it becomes an enduring way of praising God's majesty and mercy and reflecting on the good news of the birth of Christ. Now back to Jens for some a musical interlude. Okay, thanks, Ryan. I thought Ryan's discussion about the different translations of the Gloria were really was really fascinating because it shows there's a lot of room for interpretation. And in the end, a composer has to do exactly that. A composer of any kind of vocal piece usually starts with a text, be it Vivaldi with the Gloria text, be it Handel with the Messiah, Bach with the Passions, etc. The composer will look at the text and will think about what he or she would like to say and how it can be done. Now, in the case of the Gloria, there are certain conventions. It's obviously a piece of praise, and it starts with the instrumentation. I don't know of a single Gloria that uses orchestra and choir that doesn't have trumpets in it, <laughs> simply because that's the instruments of praise, right? It's even in the Bible already in there. And it makes sense that you say you use trumpets for the beginning of the Gloria, like what you heard earlier in this video. I would like to say a few, a few words about Vivaldi's choices. Now, I mentioned earlier that Vivaldi was really famous for his secular music, not really for his sacred music. But there's actually not really a difference between his secular and his sacred music. He uses the same compositional techniques in his sacred music that he would have used in his secular music. And his cantatas, or the Gloria, can sound like an opera and vice versa. Now, if you look at the opening of the Gloria, you have violins and trumpets play. Okay, you remember it from hearing it? Which is a very joyful, cheerful, triumphant opening. And then you have the choir coming in. And all the choir does is the following. Orchestra. Orchestra. That's all that the choir does. Compared to what the orchestra does, it's actually much less exciting. <laughs> now, usually, we always think that the orchestra has to accompany the choir. And in the, in the case of a composer like Bach, they're actually on equal footing. Like, for example, the Christmas Oratory, it will start with something like... Um, and then the choir is going to sing the same thing. Or the Gloria by, by Bach... is going to sing exactly the same motive. Not so in the case of Vivaldi. I mean, ask the choir to sing. <laughs> I don't think that would sound too good. Now the point is, the point is that Vivaldi was an instrumentalist. He came, his, his, his heritage was the violin. He was first and foremost known as a virtuoso on the violin. Actually, some of his compositions were criticized during his lifetime as being a little bit shallow and not having enough depth, etc., etc. Nothing has changed. So you can see that he, he spent a lot of time thinking about the orchestra. And in the case of the opening movement, at least, the choir was just providing the words. But it was the orchestra that provided really the music that would tell you what was going on. It is the Gloria. Now, one more thing about the opening movement. 
with regards to opera versus oratorio, or, or gloria in this case, opera means you want to provide drama, right? It's all about passions and excitement. Well, the introduction from the orchestra before the choir comes in finishes like this. Big nothing, and then... And choir coming in. This is exactly what you would do in an opera in order to create maximum attention. People, obviously, as soon as the music stops to play, they go like, what is going on? As long as you keep playing, you can fall asleep. <laughs> it's only when it stops that actually people really notice what is going on and gives them an additional boost, and that's kind of the preparation for the real gloria of the choir. So that's the first movement. There's, there's much more to say about all of the, the different movements. The second movement, Et in Terra Pax, so peace on earth, and again, very interesting translations. Again, what is the orchestra doing? You have this descending motive in the violins. What is Vivaldi trying to say? It's peace on earth that is coming from God on high. Christ is descending to us, and that is going to bring us peace. So in this case, this is what we call text painting, meaning what does the text want to say? Well, the piece is coming from above, right? How can I express that in music? Obviously, if the music goes down. That's a very easy way to express in music something that is in the text, and that is very common in composers. Now, in the case of Vivaldi, it's more a general thing, like the Gloria is joyful in general, the Edentera Pax, you have this, the, the, the descending motive, but it doesn't go beyond that. In the case of Bach, you will find that if there's a specific word in the text, something specific is going to happen. Vivaldi doesn't do that. It's more a general mood that he creates for an entire movement. Now, the last movement that I would like to mention is actually, um, where is it? Oh, yeah. The Domine Deus Agnus Dei. So, Lord God Almighty, Lamb of God, and Son of the Father, who bore our transgressions. That's the text. What we have in the music is a cello solo, just accompanied by continuo, which means someone is playing on a keyboard instruments, instrument chords, the harmonies. And then a soloist, an alto, and then the choir. Now the cello is playing the following. And you hear this motive again and again, which is again the descending idea, right? The grace of God is coming from above. So you have the introduction which finishes like this. stops, nothing. And then again orchestra, and together with soloists, and then finally when the choir comes in, singing the words, who bore our transgressions, the orchestra and soloists finish. in, or she rather, is totally alone. Lord God Almighty, the Lamb of God and Son of the Father. So the Almighty God is all alone. 
That's what the soloist is. What does it mean? Now, this is my interpretation, but I think I'm probably not far off. It means it is Christ who is all alone on the cross. He's abandoned. The almighty God that descends to us, and already in the Gloria, if you look at what happens on Good Friday, he's all alone for our sins. And that's why there's no accompaniment for the singer. It would have been easy to accompany them. It would have been very easy. Vivaldi didn't want it to create the maximum effect. On the other hand, so the soloist is singing the words, Lord God Almighty, Lamb of God and Son of the Father. And then the choir comes in with this dissonant chord, who bore our transgressions. We're talking about us, meaning the choir representing the people is singing. And it's not singing about something joyful, like the Gloria at the beginning. But it's our transgressions, our sins. That's why. And again, soloist all alone. And again, the transgressions. So I think this is really text painting at a very high level. Vivaldi wants to show what is actually going on in the Gloria. It's not just about Christmas. It's already about what happens much later. We find the same thing in Bach and the Christmas Oratorio. We, he sets an, a Christmas text to the, to the melody of our, our, uh, our sacred head now wounded. It's exactly the same message that Bach is conveying by using a hymn that everybody would have known to sing a Christmas text. And here, in this case, it is with the forces that Vivaldi uses and the way he uses them that he conveys the idea of what is behind the music. There's much more to say, but I think we have to finish. Right. Do you want to say something? Well, first of all, thank you to Jens for the music and the reflection on the text. I think it's lovely. Thank um, you, Ryan. And thanks to all of you for coming. We hope you enjoyed this, but we mostly hope, too, that you come back next Sunday, right? Next Sunday, the 20th, during Sunday School Hour, uh, we have the Christmas concert. It is a wonderful tradition here at First Pres, and we hope that you would enjoy it. It will be spectacular, and hopefully now knowing more about the music and the text will help you uh, embrace and love what you hear next week all the more. And then finally, by word of an announcement, since you've gotten a taste of Jens's genius, if you haven't already done so, in, mus in all things music. Uh, Jens, I want to turn it to you for it to, to say this. So just to look ahead, uh, I already have flyers for the next, the first concert in the new year, January 9th. It's together with the High Museum of Art. They have the Habsburg Splendor exhibition. For those of you who have seen it, I think you can confirm that it's a fantastic exposition. For those who haven't, go have a look. It's a fantastic exhibit of you know, the beautiful artwork collected by the Habsburg monarchy. And I'm going to give a concert with works that were inspired by the Habsburg monarchy. So Strauss, Mozart, Beethoven, etc. A very different repertoire from Vivaldi, but very exciting, works really well on the organ. So I hope to see you on January 9th at 2 p.m. Uh, the concert ticket includes admission to the museum. Maybe if you want to visit the, the exhibition, you just wait till the concert and go after the concert. <laughs> I have flyers, so I just leave them on the, on the table here and I hope you to see you both on this coming Sunday and then on January 9th. Great, thank you all very much. Thank you.